So we're going to start here in 2 Chronicles 7.14, and I just have a couple of, uh, of warnings. My intention in this study, believe it or not, is not to antagonize or to infuriate or to, or to sacrifice any sacred cows or anything like that. Um, but what I do want to do is help us to better understand context when we begin to memorize Scripture. And the reason for that we're going to get into but it all is rooted in the, in the following question, which I want you to think about. What do we mean to say when we say that the Bible is inspired? What do we mean to say when we say that? How we interpret the Bible, how we use the texts, reveals what we think they're for and what we mean by inspiration. So when we quote a text without really thinking or considering its context, we're saying a certain thing about inspiration. And I want you to think about that. What do you mean to say when you say that the Bible is inspired? You're welcome to respond, but I don't want to put anybody on the spot. So if you really feel the need to define it, I'm going to give you a moment. And then we're going to kind of march through some of the options. All right. Well, let's look at what the Bible says about its own inspiration. And this is really our source material. The Bible is an interesting book, and it, uh, it's not like any other work of, of history or spirituality that we're likely to find. This thing started, um, well, how many thousands of years ago? I mean, at the very, very, very earliest, the first things were written around 1450 B.C., and likely it was written before then. And there have been many authors, and many hands have touched it. Some of the books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy particularly, show some stages of development, meaning that people continue to update them over hundreds of years. We know that because place names are updated, for instance, and the names of God get updated, and some of those kind of things. So this is a book that's been worked on. It's almost a generational project of the people of Israel. And they claim that they did it, because God told them to do it. And so generation after generation, over the course of at least 1,500 years, maybe longer, the people of Israel worked on those first 39 books. And so that's it. we don't just have um, texts. We have a whole culture of people immersed in these texts and generations. So when we think about the Bible, we're thinking about a people as much as we are thinking about a set of words. New Testament's written quicker, but still a continuation of the project of Israel since all of the apostles were uh, Israelites. So when we ask what is the Bible, we have little choice but to start with what the Bible says about itself and what the people of Israel thought they were doing when they were writing it. And Paul helps us with that. Um, we're going to look at 2 Timothy. It's written right here on your, um, on your outline. But 2 Timothy 3.16 is a popular verse. But let me say why we should care what Paul says. Uh, his claims to being an apostle and all other things are important. But Paul is also a Pharisee, well-trained in the history of Israel. What we, 
Paul is a Pharisee trained in the history of Israel. His understanding of the First Testament, the first 39 books, is more or less what the Jewish people believed they were doing as they were writing them, composing them, and working on them. And he gives us a good summary in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. And we should be aware that the first two of these passages are talking about the First Testament. They're not talking about the New Testament. There is no New Testament when these are written. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So just based on that summary statement as to what Scripture is for, how, how would you put it in your own words? What is Paul saying? I mean, he calls it God-breathed. It's not a word used by Greek-speaking people. It seems to be invented by Paul. He's pulling this right, right out of the First Testament. I mean, when God breathed, who else is God breathed? Everything. We are, animals are in some ways. I mean, if you, if you take the book of Ecclesiastes seriously, like I do. But certainly in, the, in Genesis, God took um, raw material, earth, dirt, and he formed it, and he breathed into it the breath of life, and out popped of that process a human being. Humans are God breathed, right? And the book of Ecclesiastes would say everything that lives is God breathed. And so for Paul to say that about the first 39 books of the Bible, the First Testament, is to say that this is a living thing. It's not, some, it's, it's not just some work of human imagination. It's not, just some, it's not just ink on a page. Somehow, God took this thing and breathed life into it. And for that reason, it's powerful and effective for Paul. So inspiration... Inspire, to breathe into, literally, is the idea that the Word of God has been made alive by the breath of God. And Paul seems to be assuming that to be true. What's its purpose? I like to ask this question because our statement of faith on Scripture in the Church of the Nazarene says that the purpose of Scripture is for is salvation. But what does Paul say the purpose of Scripture is? But the purpose of Scripture here is teaching, rebuking, correcting, mm -hmm. and training in righteousness. And that is supposed to equip us for good works. <laughs> it's very interesting that salvation is nowhere there, though it might be implied. But um, so, so think about what it means for the Bible to be inspired and what the purpose Paul believes it's been written for. Think about that. And then 2 Peter 1, 19-21 is the other passage we have in the New Testament that talks about the purpose of Scripture. And it says this. Uh, this is Peter uh, writing. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. And, and so he calls it the prophetic message. He's there talking about the 39 books of the First Testament, at least in our numbering. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you'll do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. And let's, I'll stop there for just a moment. We hear the word prophecy, and our instincts are to think he's talking about the passages in Scripture that are foretelling future events or something like that. But for the Hebrew people, prophecy is what the prophets did, whether they were talking about an application of the law to their present time, whether they were talking about things God wanted them to say to the king at the present time, whether they were foretelling future events. 
pretty much anything a prophet said or wrote is considered prophecy. And so we've kind of uh, whittled it down to the idea that prophecy is just foretelling the future, but that is not a Hebraic use of the word. So we're talking here about the whole First Testament, is my point, and not just sections that prophesy things the way we use it. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will. But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Talk about that passage. What do you hear in it? What does it mean for the Bible to be inspired? What is it? And again, here we're talking about the First Testament. We haven't yet gotten to comments about the New Testament. This is Peter's argument as to why a Gentile, not raised as a Jewish person, that this is not their book, it's not their history, it has nothing to do with them. They, they were raised in other places, other times. They're more interested in Socrates and Plato and Greek philosophers and how great the Greek language is and the power of the Roman Empire. They're more interested in all of that. And <clears throat> Peter's saying, no, 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 you must read this text. Why? Well, anyway, You'll do well to pay attention to it. As to a light shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. There's, there's a sense here that it is temporary. Do you get that there? It's temporary. Those, the scriptures are constantly paying attention to them is until the morning star. This is New Testament speak of Jesus' return. Until Jesus returns, you should pay attention to this until then. Because we're in a dark place. This is a light. Pay attention to it until the day dawn. So there's a temporary sense of it, too. Peter doesn't sit here, and, uh, and that's against his Jewish culture, <coughs> who believe the law would last forever. It's one of the reasons that the Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection from the dead, because they couldn't see how the law of Moses would work if everybody came back from the dead. So they asked Jesus, this woman was married, her husband died, and then she married somebody else, and that husband died, and then she married somebody else. Now whose, husband, whose wife will she be in the, in the kingdom? And they're thinking it's ridiculous. If everybody comes back from the dead, the law is useless. And of course, Peter, taking that from Jesus, has understood that the law has temporary sway in this time period. So that's there. Peter is very careful. And he argues here that the prophecy did not come about by the prophet's own interpretation. That was, in his day, the claim against the scriptures and continues to be today. That's what they thought. But we know better. How many times do we have that conversation? It's exactly what Peter was facing. He's saying, no, 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 no. The interpretation does not come from the prophets. That's a hard argument to make. Mm. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So it's the prophets who are inspired to speak on God's behalf. This is all very important to the conversation we have. So those two passages speak about the First Testament. Now what about the New? Well, the New is much more difficult, and that is... If we think about the books that are debated in church history, people will say that we never got the canon settled until four, the 400s. And they'll say, therefore, the church authorized the canon. So it, the church is more authoritative than the canon. You'll hear those arguments because the church was around long before the canon was. If we look at the history, there's no debate over the first 39 books anywhere in the history of the church. They're just assumed. But the 27 that we call our New Testament, those do get discussed. Because how do we know that these are authoritative and others aren't? Everything ends up coming down to John 14, 23 to 27. 
Jesus replied, he's speaking to his disciples, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we'll come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I've spoken while still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, I don't give to you as the world gives. Don't let your hearts be troubled and don't be afraid. This is followed up in John by this weird scene in which Jesus breathes on his disciples long before the day of Pentecost. So his promise is that he will send the Holy Spirit to them, that the Holy Spirit will remind them of everything that he said. And he will teach them all things. This is taken by the history of the church to mean that the apostles are going to be carried along by the Holy Spirit in ways similar to the prophets of the First Testament. And it begins to lay the foundation of the authority of the apostolic teachings. And then when the church begins to debate, they debate whether the books we have are rightly corresponding to apostolic teachings or if they derive from some other source. And that becomes the criteria by which we decide what's in or out. The apostles don't write them all, but they all have to be linked with apostles' teachings. So here, Jesus promised that he'll fill them with his Holy Spirit and that the Holy Spirit will teach them all things and remind them of everything Jesus said becomes the foundation for the authority of the New Testament. And so books like the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Mary, they're never really seriously considered by the early church ever. You're not going to find any debate where they, they wrestle over some books, Apocalypse of Peter and some others, but not those Gospels because they were written in the second century by a group called the Gnostics who are claiming divine inspiration and they're writing texts as they have these ecstatic experiences with God. And so the church never seriously considers them. They're not apostolic. But they do seriously consider some books that they're not sure if they're apostolic like the Apocalypse of Peter and so on. And the other criteria by which they're going to evaluate uh, folks is also here. Jesus indicates that those who are truly of him will obey his teaching. And so the apostles demonstrate their being in Christ by their lives of faith. And so you'll see the early church very concerned about how the apostles lived out their faith. A whole project that's summarized in a book called The Ecclesiastical History by a man named Eusebius in which he traces the lives of all the apostles and, and tells us the stories of how they died and what they did. Very important, because if they didn't live out the life of Christ consistently, we couldn't claim for them to be carried along. The Apocrypha is used, just like it is in Judaism, as a historical text. Um, the Jews have never accepted the Apocrypha because for Judaism... Um, it had to be written originally in Hebrew, and the Apocrypha, was all, they were all written originally in Greek, so they could not be considered as canon. The early church follows suit with that, by reading the Apocrypha, but you have several church fathers who talk about its lesser standing. And it's really not until after the Protestant Reformation that the Catholic Church decides that scripture. It's kind of a response to Protestants, because the Protestants wanted it taken out. Martin Luther felt having it in the same book was confusing to people. So in his translation into German of the Bible, he didn't want it in there because he didn't want anybody confused to think it was the same level as Scripture. And the Catholics responded at the Council of Trent by raising it to the level of Scripture. But that wasn't even true in their history. So, but it's useful. I, 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 for instance, I'm not sure you can really understand the New Testament if you've never read First and Second Maccabees. Um, it lays the foundation for almost all the disputes Jesus has with the Pharisees and Sadducees. They're all in First and Second Maccabees. So it's hard to be a good reader of the New Testament without reading the Apocrypha, but it's different. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to take what we've just read in those passages and try and, and fine-tune it and bring it down to a point. 
How does our understanding of the Bible's inspiration affect how we approach, study, and interpret it? Now here's where, I mean, try not to get offended if I'm attacking a way that you viewed the scriptures. And, you know, this is what I always get when I do this. I always get... I wrote all of those things. Anytime I, I, I have this class, I talk to people about what the scriptures are, I'll list out options, and someone will say, why can't it be all of those things? And uh, if, you, if you feel that, that's fine, but let me just tell you, my, my, my feeling is that that's lazy. And it can't be contradictory things. So like the Bible can't love purple and hate purple simultaneously, like things like that. You can't just take everything, even if they're contradictory, and say, it's all those things, let's not critically think. So I'm going to talk about these three things that people tend to view Scripture as, and I think they're mutually exclusive. I do. I don't think they can be all these things. But but we can... If you think that, you just know how I feel, and if you still want to push back, you do it anyway, because you should have the courage to do that. So first, some folks think of the Bible in what I would call a very pagan way. They think of the Bible as what's called a grimoire. And that's not a very familiar word maybe to everybody unless you've read Harry Potter, and then it's very familiar. A grimoire is a book of sacred sayings, magical utterances. So when we begin to think of the Bible as a grimoire, we think of it as a a, a book that has powerful statements in it. And so when we read the Bible like a grimoire, we kind of read this pedantic, boring, long history looking for a verse that jumps out and we can just grab. And we're reading Leviticus and it is so tedious and we're reading about sacrifices and we're just hungry like, God, say something to me. What is this for? Why am I reading about how to cut up a bull? Like this is useless to me. And we're reading and we're reading and we're reading. And then we find this wonderful verse and, and, and we go, oh, that's why I was reading this. That's what God wants to say to me. Oh, I can get out of the sacrifices. And he said to Moses, I love you. Oh, that's why I read the whole book of Leviticus, because God wanted me to know that he loves me. Whew. Done with Leviticus. Not my point. The grimoire reading has this idea that you're just looking for magic phrases. And when you find the magic phrase, you're done. And we call it the Holy Spirit spoke to me through that verse. And what we mean is the Holy Spirit got me off the hook. I didn't have to do any work. He showed me the one sentence I was looking for, and that book is done. And then if, if you get called on that, like, I think you might have taken that out of context. Then the person says, but that's what God said to me. Are you telling me that God doesn't speak through his word? This is the argument you get into, and now it's a piety argument. Like, you mean if I actually want to know the context, I'm less faithful? Is that how this goes? Like, so, so the grimoire reading is, is it, it doesn't really care about context or history or what an author's trying to say. What it really cares about is finding a verse that I can quote, put on my wall, and use to guide my life. And once I find it, then just like looking through a witch's spell book, I've got the magic words, I'll say the incantation, we're good to go. So that's the grimoire idea, that what's really important is just finding a good sentence. You're going to find that that's what happened in Second Chronicles. It's a very tedious passage. It's very difficult. There's a lot of darkness. It's really negative, but there's one positive sentence. They plucked it out and said, this is mine. Now, there's another approach that says the Bible is primarily a collection of laws, 
principles, propositions, truths. And so when you read the story of David, what's important is that you understand the moral of the story. You try to find that one truth statement that the story is trying to say. So when David commits Bath, uh, adultery with Bathsheba, and then God forgives him for his sin but kills his child, he begs God not to kill the child, but God does anyway, then David picks himself up, dusts himself off, and moves on. What is the moral of the David story? Well, people have come up with a lot of things. Some have said, this is an example that God forgives any sin, and whatever you do doesn't matter, as long as you ask for forgiveness. So David is the chief of sinners. Nobody's perfect. He even committed adultery. God forgave him. So that's the principle. We don't have to go back to that story now. We've got the principle. We know what God was trying to tell us. Once I can write it down in one sentence, I'm done. Other folks have read it and thought that God is a vindictive kind of God who when you sin, he might not punish you, but he's going to hurt the people you love. And I've had folks believe that their own sins, they've watched something bad happen in their child's life or something in their parent's life, and they've come and said, I think God's punishing me. And I'll say, well, punishing you? Punishing you by, by striking your child with cancer? Yes, haven't you read the David story? Sometimes when the, the father sins, God punishes the children. That's the principle they took from that story. The rest of the story they're blind to. They've got their... When we're looking for principles, propositions, and there are, there are pastors, teachers, lay people, who when they read the Bible, this is what they're looking for. So they read the big, long story, find the point, write down the point, and they're good. Got the story taken care of. And when that person says, I know the Bible, what they mean is, I know the principles, I know the rules, I know the laws, I could list them out for you. Now, the Bible has laws and principles. There are sections where that's very clearly at stake, the Ten Commandments, for instance. But the Bible's mostly stories. And uh, we'll, we'll get to why stories. I mean, Jesus tells parables mostly, not truth claims. He doesn't just give you the, the, the goods and write, tell you a sentence about the way things are that you have to accept. He tells you a story because that's Jewish. It's the story that's important. Why is the story important? This is the third category. Remember, we're talking about essentially what the scriptures are. Now, the scriptures might have uh, statements that are powerful. That's number one. The, the scriptures might have truths. That's number two. But we're talking about what the scriptures essentially are. And what I'm saying is you can't define it as all three of these things. You have to define it by something. And I think Second Peter does, and I think it's this third one. What the scriptures are is the inspiration of human beings chosen by God to communicate on his behalf. So it's the people that are inspired. And the words are therefore inspired because the people were inspired. If you can accept that, and this is what I think the scriptures primarily are. As a matter of fact, I don't know how else to read 2 Peter 1, 19-21. If this is primarily what the scriptures are, then what those authors are trying to say is the word of God. Not what you can make it mean by playing around with the words. What they are trying to say is the word of God, if they're the ones who are inspired. Now, if the words are just inspired, who cares who wrote them? Who cares if Paul wrote that? It's just the words. It could have been Sam from, from uh, Galilee who wrote all Who cares who they are? It's just the words. But if it's Paul, then we have to constantly ask in the book of Galatians, what is Paul trying to argue here? 
Why would I bother with that? Because that's what God's trying to say. What Paul's trying to say is what God's trying to say. What the prophets who worked on Genesis are trying to say is what God's trying to say. Once we get that and understand that it's the prophets who are inspired and the apostles who are inspired, that it's them that God promised to give his Holy Spirit to, then we recognize that our job is to understand what they were trying to say to us. That means we're not a grimoire. Now, if they're trying to say something very meaningful, then, of course, you're going to find it there. If they're trying to give us a law or a principle, then, of course, you're going to find it there. If they're just trying to tell us a story that they think is going to help put us in a place to better understand an issue, then that's what they're going to do. They're going to, however they're trying to argue their case, make their case, whatever statements they're trying to commend to you, they're the ones who are inspired. The word is then derivatively inspired. Yeah, no, I don't think that the that suddenly the person's capacity to reason is will limit God using them. But they are limited in some way. For instance, the book of John is the worst Greek in the New Testament. It's horrible. And it has a terribly low vocabulary. It's not good grammatically. A first-year Greek student can translate it beginning to end. It has almost no vocabulary. So it's very poorly written. A Greek person looking at the Gospel of John would say, this person doesn't really know Greek who wrote this clearly speaks another language trying to translate this into Greek, similar to the way that I would try and translate my writing into Spanish. So God is a bit limited there. He doesn't suddenly make John uh, an amazing Greek student the way Luke is, who writes complicated, sophisticated Greek with the best of the Greek students. He doesn't suddenly do that. But still, if you've read John, you can see the amazing ideas that come out of this terrible vocabulary. So here, uh, he's not limited, but he is limited, right? And, and so this is the human and the divine component in Scripture working together, and you can see it all through the Bible. Every book is unique. Yeah. Well, if you don't know who the author is, you have to trust the early church that this is apostolic. You still have to ask what the author is trying to say, whoever it was. If it's apostolic, and it's, you're, we're trusting the early church on books like Hebrews. And matter of fact, all the Gospels that don't say who wrote them, Matthew, Mark, uh, don't. That's not in there. Tradition tells us who they were. It gets more complicated. I'm so glad the scriptures give us more um, words about the authority of the First Testament, because here's where it gets difficult. Many of the books have multiple authors. So which one? To, to study the Old Testament, we're almost arguing that the whole tradition of Israel is inspired. That whole prophetic tradition that worked on these over 1,500 years was carried along by the Holy Spirit. So that's more complicated. But we have Jesus affirming its authority. We have the two powerful passages in Paul and Peter asserting its authority. So the First Testament we're sort of stuck with. But when it comes to the New Testament, it is. It's about apostolic, the teachings being apostolic. But we still have to ask, what's the author trying to say? We have to. Um, trust that the Holy Spirit was guiding them not to author these texts, but to, but to rightly select them. Yeah. And it's interesting to me that you have councils in the early church about everything. I mean, I mean, exactly how to understand Jesus being divine and human. Exactly how to understand God as Trinity. You have these councils all over, but there's no council ever called to determine the authority of Scripture. Uh, they're kind of back-channel conversations about, are there any books we should take out? It's almost as though the early church didn't feel it had authority over the scriptures. They only had the authority to say, did apostle write this? Did he not? So you have no counsel called to discuss this issue. It's just sort of carried along. It's interesting. So my assumption, when I come to a text, you'll hear it in the sermons that I preach, 
But I assume that the inspiration of the Holy Spirit was on the prophets and apostles who worked on these texts. And so for me, the Bible, taken and studied apart from that perspective, we're, we're picking out uninspired things. Just because the words come from the Bible doesn't mean that they're magical or inspired automatically. The Bible hasn't given us a, a, a sentence that suddenly is sacred. And this is the problem. People who love the King James, they're seeing it this way. Like, I, I memorized that verse with these words. It's the words that are inspired. And so if I change the words, I change the scriptures. No, it's the author who was inspired. It doesn't matter what words you have as long as you understand what the author is trying to say. So it wasn't the King James language that was inspired. It was Paul that was inspired. By God. By God. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, yeah, inspired. God breathed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it's not the words or the text or the manuscripts that receive the sacredness. It is the people who are working on these texts. And that's what the church has given us, the writings of people that they believe to be carried along by the Holy Spirit in whose interpretation is not coming from their own hearts, but coming as it's guided by God. So that's what we've been given. So when we come to a passage like 2 Chronicles 7.14, I'm going to ask, because we don't know who wrote Kings. This is one of the great, uh, tradition says Elijah, but nobody knows. It, it doesn't say who wrote it. And there's some evidence that it was worked on over a couple generations of prophets, at least in updating the place names and things like that. And the author cites his sources. In Kings, you'll say, he'll say, if you want to read more about the reign of such and such a king, then you should look in the annals of the kings of Judah or the annals of the kings of Israel. And you'll say, wait, there's another book. What, he has sources, this guy. And we don't have the sources. Because what's, it's, the history is not inspired that's not to say it didn't happen. It's the interpretation of history that's inspired. So we don't need the original source material. What we need is whatever the prophets said it means. And that's what we have in Scripture. So when we deal with kings, we don't know who the author is. Same with Chronicles. We don't know who these authors are. But we still have to ask the question, what is the trajectory of this book? What is it trying to teach? What's the context? What does this promise mean when it's spoken? And then we ask the question, what does it mean today? As a secondary, tertiary uh, question. So 2 Chronicles 7.14, we should have been clued in that something is missing here. When this verse starts mid-sentence, <laughs> you cannot quote 2 Chronicles 7.14 without beginning with these three dots. Because it's halfway through a sentence. And you, once you read it, you're going to laugh because the part that we don't quote is terrible. So no wonder we don't quote it. It's about locust plagues and terrors and horrors. And then if, you know, we begin halfway through the sentence. So verse 14 says this. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. These are our three questions. What's the occasion of that promise? What's happening when God says it? It's actually pretty rare for God to speak overtly in the books of First and Second Chronicles. So this is a rare moment where God himself speaks. So what's the occasion? Why is he doing it? What was he promising them precisely? Second question. Third, is this an eternal promise to all people? Is it a temporary promise to all people? 
Is it an eternal promise to certain people? Is it a temporary promise to certain people? Is it a conditional promise? Is it conditioned on anything? Or is it an unconditional promise based on nothing other than God's own word? Are there any limitations to the promise? How is it qualified? These are the questions we need to ask to ask ourselves, what does this mean? Because again, what Kings is try- uh, what Chronicles is trying to say is what's inspired. That's my assumption anyway. So here's the context. I'm going to read the whole thing. And we'll find that the answer to the first question, what is the occasion of this promise, becomes very simple. Solomon has just finished the temple, and he is dedicating it. And lo and behold, the Lord speaks. When Solomon, verse 11, had finished the temple of the Lord in the royal palace and had succeeded in carrying out all he had in mind to do in the temple of the Lord and in his palace, the Lord appeared to him at night and said, so this is Solomon alone. It's happening at night. I've heard your prayer, and I've chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. So it sounds like he's in the temple when he has this visitation. When I shut up the heavens, so there is no rain. This is weird, right? He's just made the temple. It's a good time. And God says, I'm going to tell you if something's going to happen. I'm going to do something terrible to you. And then I'm going to tell you what you can do about it. Okay? When I shut up the heavens so that there's no rain, or command locusts to devour the land, or send a plague among my people, if my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. First thing we should observe is, this is a promise for when you're being punished. When God is kicking the snot out of you, this is what you need to do. So first, that's the context. But then we have to go on and see what he means by it. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. So where do they have to say this prayer in order to get the blessing he promises? They have to go to Solomon's temple. If they come here and pray, I will hear them. That's the promise here. Now, we, I know we can get super, um, you know, Christological and say, well, now Jesus is the new temple, and so anytime we invoke Jesus' name, this applies. And you can do that stuff, but you should do it later. You should do it after you've understood the passage, right? I've chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. As for you, if you walk before me faithfully as David your father did and do all I command and observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted with David your father when I said you shall never fail to have a successor to rule over Israel. But if you turn away and forsake the decrees and commands I've given you and go off to serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot Israel from my land which I have given them and will reject this temple I've consecrated for my name. I'll make it a byword and an object of ridicule among all peoples. This temple will become, such a, will become a heap of rubble. All who pass by will be appalled and say, Why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and to this temple? People will answer because they have forsaken the Lord, the God of their ancestors who brought them out of Egypt, and have embraced other gods, worshiping and serving them. That is why he brought all this disaster. And interestingly enough, Solomon's the temp- temple is destroyed in 586. And when they build the new temple, the second temple, in the days of Nehemiah and Ezra, um, God comes and blesses those with a new promise. And then Jesus destroys that one. Yeah. Or at least his prophecy does. And then we get to Jesus. So uh, this is the dedication of Solomon's 
uh, temple. So in this context, we ask the question, what was God promising? What was he promising the Israelites? And we need to know the terms, right? So first, if I'm punishing you, and why would God punish them according to the law? He didn't say if, he said when. Yeah, I know. <laughs> he already saw what was happening in Solomon's life. Remember, it's interesting if you go back a little bit, Solomon's palace is about twice the size of the temple. Probably a bad sign. But you know all those boring measurements that nobody wants to read and they just skip over? That's what they sum up to, that his temple, I mean, his palace is about twice the size of the temple. So things are already going in a weird direction, right? When God's house is about half the size of Solomon's house. And uh, here God says, when punishment comes, and why would punishment come? We're in the context of the Old Covenant, because they disobey the Torah, because they fail to, to obey. And God punishes them. Then, there's only one way for you to be restored. You need to come to this temple. You need to seek my face. This is sacrifice and all that. You need to pray. You need to turn from your wicked ways. Then I'll hear you. I'll forgive your sin, and then I'll bring healing to your land. What land? Any land where God's people just so happen to be? What land? It's the land of Israel. Yeah, this is the healing of the land of Israel. So this is God's promise to them. Now he says, so, so he's promising that the temple will be a sacred place in which God will promise to hear his people, especially in times in which they've fallen under his judgment, that they can come here. And if they follow certain things, he will hear them and forgive them and bring healing to the land that's being plagued by God himself. He says prayer will be powerful and potent here, and he guarantees to hear when they pray there. And then he goes on to make promises about Solomon. And he requires Solomon to walk faithfully as David did. And if he does not, then even though he promised that David would never cease to have a man on the throne, if Solomon doesn't walk faithfully, then he's going to lose the throne. It's going to be taken away, and this temple where God has promised to dwell and promised to hear will be nothing but rubble, and all the promises he just made will be destroyed. Now, if we remember the history which Susan jumped us ahead to of Solomon's temple, all those worst things happened. This temple where he made this promise was no more after the Babylonian exile. In 586, which is pretty much the end, of the, of, the, of the work of the Babylonians, the temple was destroyed. It wouldn't be rebuilt for another couple of generations, and then never quite to the beauty of Solomon's until Herod the Great got his hands on it. So this temple that this promise was in respect to was destroyed because what's at the end of this passage in fact happened. Solomon disobeyed. This kingdom is split because of him and his son, and then eventually destroyed because of the evil of the people. So that's important. When Jesus, in the New Testament, says not one stone will be on top of another at this temple, he's not talking about the temple that we have here. This temple's gone. He's talking about the second temple built later. So Jesus makes the same promise that God made to Solomon, except not in foresight, but at the end. He's saying, yep, it's wicked. I'm going to destroy this one too. So once we get the history how do we then answer the question, what does this mean for us? What is God saying that he may still be saying? How do we do that? This is where we need to, it's, it's a good point. Maybe there is a principle at work here that works all the time, kind of like gravity. It's just a, a law of nature. Mm -hmm. And it's going to repeat itself over and over again. We might say that. 
That led the Israelites, the Jewish people of Jesus' day, to assume that when bad things happened to the nation, this was God's punishment, and all they then had to do was pray, make sacrifices in the temple, and God would forgive them. But it wasn't working. It wasn't working in Jesus' day. They were fasting. They were making sacrifices. They were trying to be perfect. They were leading people to repentance, all those things. But they were not getting their kingdom back. The Romans weren't going anywhere. Nothing was working. And when Jesus comes, they say to him, when those people were punished by Pilate, what had they done wrong? When that tower fell and crushed all those people in Siloam, what had they done? And Jesus says, not nothing. It just happened. And you should be ready. And Jesus begins to talk like we should expect these horrors to happen even when we are faithful. Matter of fact, he comes into Matthew 5 and he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted, who mourn, who suffer, uh, because theirs is the earth and theirs for is the righteousness sake, Yeah, for right. Well, that's, a, that's only one beatitude. Yes, those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. But he said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. He doesn't say why they're mourning, just that they're mourning. Blessed are those. Right? So, so here we have Jesus giving this idea in the New Testament that terrible things could be happening. Matter of fact, when he gets to the end times discussion in Matthew chapter 24, he says that as the end times grow, grow closer, there'll be wars, there'll be famines, there'll be, there'll be terrible things that are happening. And if we were taking the principle from this passage, we would say, well, all of that is because... God is sinning, I mean, because the people sinned, and so God is punishing them, and the way to stop it, the earthquakes and the tornadoes and the, and the volcanoes and the wars, would be to repent and to turn back, and then he will heal their land. Isn't that how this passage is used in our culture? If my people who are called by my name will, then we can settle all the problems. No more Hurricane Katrina's. No more terrible tornadoes devastating towns in Iowa. No more earthquakes ravaging California. This is because of sin, because we've taken the principle from this story. And if we could just repent as a nation, God would heal our land and America the beautiful would rise again, right? Maybe it wouldn't. But Jesus says no. I think that's the point. It's Jesus, never going to happen. Yeah, but, happen. but Jesus says that you should expect in the new covenant, in the new kingdom, you should expect that... Suffering might actually be a sign of faithfulness and not a sign of evil. That in the new covenant, the most persecuted people on earth might actually be the righteous ones. Whereas in this principle, it's the wicked who suffer inordinately. So as Jesus begins to do this, why am I making a big deal of this? Here's the problem with thinking this is primary principles. When it's primarily principles, they have to be consistent. So God is never allowed to make a new promise say a new word, or change the rules. He's never allowed to, because he did a universal principle. If you sin, you suffer. If you suffer, you repent. If you repent, you're healed. Universal principle. So if Jesus decides he wants to do it different, how does he do that? You can't just change gravity for the fun of it, so you can't change the principle. It's one of the primary reasons that the Pharisees didn't understand who he was. They thought he was a, a, a blasphemer, primarily because he was changing the rules. You can't change the rules. You don't have the authority to do that. They're forever. This is the Sadducees. This is all that stuff. So what I want to, to, to ask when we say, how do we apply this? There are a lot of ways to do it. 
we could take a universal principle and think it's always going to work, which I think is typically how this is used. But we also might recognize that this promise was tied to a temple that is gone. So when they rebuild the second temple, we go to Ezra and Nehemiah, we see what kind of promises God made about that temple. Sadly for us, that temple's gone too. But we have a new temple. And I'm a terrible artist. But it's no longer a building, it's a person. And there are new promises associated with that one. Now you might say, okay, you're convincing me that I don't have to read the First Testament. And I'm gonna, I'll address that in a moment. But what we have to say is, when we understand the authors are inspired for their time to their people, then we begin to understand the bigger context. And so we take a passage like this, which seems to offer us a way out of our problems, but is denied by Jesus. Then we can't make the universal principle argument. We can't, because Jesus is the covenant we're under. So what's the point of this story? Well, there's a lot of things you could actually draw out of it, even some principles. But for the principle to work, we have to still let God decide he might do things differently that he did then. We have to allow him to do that, which means they're not universal principles. The only things that still last are the things God says still lasts. So what still lasts out of this? Out of that passage, what still is in force, we say this, we follow a person. Not a principle, not a law, not a rule, not a guide. A person. Now the difference with a person, any, any of you ever tried to control your spouse with 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 laws, thou shalt not, or hold them to principles. Like like if your if your spouse says one day I'm going to do the dishes today. Okay, you do the dishes. He did the dishes. The next day he doesn't do the dishes, and you say, why didn't you do the dishes? Why well, did that yesterday? Well, but you laid down a law. The dishes are yours now, brother. Rest of your life, you're doing dishes because it's a universal principle. Amen. Right? <laughs> People don't do that well, right? People are going to adjust to the situation, and they want to be respected for that. Now, the way we've got around this with God is to pretend that he's kind of a person, but he's more like a principle. You know, he can't really change. So, so what we say is that he's kind of a person, but not like any person you've ever known. God never changes, which means... He's really not a person. He's kind of a thing. Kind of like gravity. It does the same thing over and over again. It has really no freedom. It's kind of trapped in its own nature. And we've done that with God. My point is that when we're following a person, we have to take each text and each context carefully because we recognize that God, as a person, may be making different decisions at different times based on different criteria. Matter of fact, I don't know how you understand what Jesus is doing to the law unless you can embrace that. Because if the Ten Commandments are universal principles, then by what logic does Jesus change them? The law says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It says that. Jesus says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So Jesus, the law says that if you Break my finger, I can break yours. But my point is, when we follow a person, and we all say this, we know this to be true, that God seems to operate in different ways. He's not calling fire and brimstone right now down on Sodom and Gomorrah. But if the principle is that if you live in that kind of sin, you get destroyed, why isn't it happening? Why do we have Psalms, for instance, when David says, why do the righteous 
suffer and the wicked prosper. He says that to God because taking the principles from the First Testament, you wouldn't think that that should happen, but it does. But here we have God, who in Jesus goes with the tax collectors and sinners, and he hangs out with them. God as a person loves those folks, and he's not quick to act against them. So he, he, the law is never a straitjacket for God the way that it can be for us, mm -hmm. because he's the Lord of it. So when we follow a person, we ask ourselves these kinds of questions. And my, my concern with principles is not that there are no principles in the Bible, but that principles get in the way of the person. They, 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 they strap the person. You'll hear people say, like, like God never changes. And, and what they mean is, I can claim any promise I want, say it applies to my situation, because I read it somewhere, and God never changes, so this stays forever. And here, we could be drawing a principle from this passage that nobody wants to draw. And I'm curious as to why. Why is it all the good stuff? Because the actual history story tells us that this promise was conditioned on this temple. And that if Solomon disobeyed, the temple would be destroyed and the promise would go with it. And that's what happened. Because yeah. Israel's not being healed today. And yet... So, but nobody wants to build that principle, right? You disobey God, his promises go with your disobedience. Nobody wants to build that principle. Why not? Because it's uncomfortable. But you could draw that principle out if you wanted to, and you could argue it from the text. That God's promises are conditioned on your obedience. And if you don't obey, then God doesn't promise. We follow a person. Like, let me explain this way. If I promise my wife, which I've done, that I will be faithful to her, in good times and in bad, for rich or for poor, and I'm talking with her up there at the altar. Should everybody in the room assume that that promise is for them? That promise is, is for all of them. When I make this promise to Jen up in front of the altar and I tell her that for rich or for poor, for good times and in bad, sickness and in health, I will be faithful to you. When I make that promise to her, should everybody in the room assume, who's overhearing it, that I'm making that promise to all of them and I mean it to be universally applicable to every person I ever meet? That you'll be faithful to everybody. Yes, the way I'm pledging to her, I'm pledging to everybody. This is another important issue because God is making this promise to Solomon about Israel. By what logic is that a promise for Gentiles? Because we just overheard it and we owned it. And I'm waiting for my wedding, somebody from the congregation to go, uh, all right, sir. I'm hoping to hold you to that promise <laughs> in my life. So again, context helps us because this is a promise he made to Israel. And it is a promise that they failed to enact because they refused to repent. And because of that, the temple was taken from them and the promise is taken from them. Isn't there a big difference? You gave a promise to Jen. God gave a promise to Israel. To Israel, but not to the whole earth at this point. The promise he makes to the whole earth comes through Jesus because we're dealing with different times. And God is always true to his word, always faithful to what he says. He never lies. But here's the challenge. What if he gives a temporary promise to an individual and you universalize it? Now it's going to look like he's lying to us, but he wasn't talking to you. So he tells Abraham, kill your son. How many of you have killed yours? See, my point is we don't take these things as universal unless we like them. We universalize the ones we like. And we temporize the ones we don't. So nobody has ever had to have a class like this to teach you not to kill your children just because Abraham was supposed to sacrifice Isaac. I've never, and that was God's direct word to 
him. He said, kill your son directly from God. I would suggest that he's talking about the temple here and not the people. The people just come in in terms of what the temple will be for. But the people come into the temple to worship God. Not anymore. Not anymore. <laughs> if God kills the thing he made the promise about, is the promise still there? And, and this is what I'm trying to help us to do is to be careful that we don't hold God to things he hasn't said he would do. There is no better way to make someone think God is a liar than to tell them he made a promise he did not make to them. If you misrepresent God's promises to people and then they don't get carried out in their lives, who's on the hook for misrepresenting God? You and I are. So if we're going to tell them that God promised them something, we better sure be sure. And I'll tell you the only way I can be sure is if Jesus says it. <laughs> That's not, Now, I'm not saying that this is not important because look at the story this tells. The temple was not permanent. God was not going to to just keep them alive no matter what they did. There's tons of stuff we can draw out of this. But if we want to know what God's going to do to us, we shouldn't look to the temple. We should look to Jesus. But if we want to know how serious God is about holiness, certainly we're going to look here. He's pretty serious about it. But what does holiness look like? Well, we're going to have to look to Jesus. And this is how these stories go back and forth. So if you ever have somebody who says, oh, God doesn't care. Yeah, I'm just going to live in sin, and then I'll just repent on my deathbed, and we'll be good. You can say, have you read the First Testament? I mean, let's read the story of what happened to the temple. Do you really think that's the God we serve? Because what we're looking for here is who God is. Not the principles. Because that straight, we're trying to find out about the person. The best thing about this story is that it tells us who he is. And once we know who he is, our expectations are transformed because we better understand the person. And that means we must read this because it tells us who he is. Jesus assumes we know all that in order to come to him. So that's important. But again, it's the person, not the principle. That's, that's my point. We're not trying to find rules by which to govern our lives. We're, we're trying to follow a God that we don't know very well, and we're trying to understand him better. And this story tells us a lot about who God is.